Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as the go-to hub of sexual health communication resources, specifically for people navigating herpes stigma. In 2017, this organization actually began as a podcast that interviewed people who were more so struggling with suicidation because of their herpes diagnosis and that evolved into just talking to people about their experience navigating herpes stigma to give people who might be struggling a little bit of a safe roadmap to where they can just tune in listen to podcast episodes take what they need and then be able to go on and apply it in their day-to-day lives as a nonprofit, one of the things that we do here is advocate for the integration of these lived experiences which essentially um highlight the communication aspects of talking about sexual health and relationship intentions and expectations into sex education resources so that we are able to further minimize the potentiality of new sexually transmitted infections being passed on. Today, I am here with Laura of Zero Proof Nation and I forget how long ago we met, but I remember that you came to uh, one of the, I don't know if it was a therapy group, one of the group therapy herpes things, or if it was just a support group in general or what. Do you, do you, do you, want, do you want me to pitch in and chime in? Yeah, <laughs> Hello. yeah, please. Yeah. Hi, Courtney. Um, I think it was this sort of interactive webinar type thing about being social with other people who had an HSV diagnosis. Um, it was over Zoom. It was maybe it was a support type group, but it wasn't therapy. It was definitely a support aspect. And I think that was sometime early last year, maybe. Oh, know. it was last was... year. I feel like it was so much longer ago than that because I had... Well, this is still pandemic time. Right. So it's like, uh, what is time? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was early last year or maybe late 2021. I don't remember. Honestly. I can see that. I, I think it might have been 2021. Okay, um, okay. But yeah, um, I recall um, early on seeing you talk a lot about like sobriety and not drinking and Mm -hmm. that was something I think that you kind of plant seeds in people's heads when you just kind of live in your own way and you're expressive and you put that out there but uh, one of the things I wanted to tell you was in July I decided to take a month off from drinking and during that month of not drinking I also didn't masturbate this was interesting so I don't know which one of these had like more of an influence (laughs) but I was able to write the first draft of a book for something positive for positive people um I was also able to what else did I do during that month I, I got done and I was like oh this is what I can do not that I drank a lot but yeah it was something that I had more energy for not being hungover and also the discipline that came with saying no to wanting mm-hmm. to go out and just drink or go to a friend's house and just drink and talk because uh one of the things that in my experience I've learned about alcohol is that I have historically used alcohol to make myself more present, but the reality is that's made me less present. And after having some experiences with not drinking alcohol and being in an environment where maybe other people are drinking, I recognize just how present I am and how uncomfortable it can be to be around all of these people making an attempt to be present through alcohol, which offers sort of this illusion of 
I guess, connectedness, you know, and, yeah. and everyone's like, oh, hey, if we're all drinking, we're more connected. Whereas it's kind of like a disconnection from being present because when you are present and you kind of feel everything happening around you, it can mm-hmm. be a little bit intense. So uh, sure. the thing that I wanted to say was, all right, July, I decided not to drink. And then I think I had, um, I went to karaoke and they had these little juices things there. And I was like, ooh, that looks good. I want that. And then I learned that there was alcohol in it. And I was like, oh, dang, that messed up my sobriety. But oh, well, we here now. And like, I didn't yeah. get drunk. I don't even think I got tipsy, to be honest. But there was that time and then another time where I had a margarita. And I was like, yeah, this don't do it for me anymore. Because I don't see the alcohol. I see the dollar amount that's being spent now. And I'm like, yeah. oh, you know what? $10 to try and be present when I know that not, not like me just not drinking makes me more present. I don't think it's worth it anymore. So well. I want to say that seeing you live out loud in that way even if I just see a post every now and then or something like that was something that I think uh contributed to my decision to explore that and I mean to this day I I don't have a desire to drink I'll go out places and I'll just you know not drink and it's as simple as that the most uncomfortable part of it is when I want to go to a bar and it's like, ah, oh, this bartender's asking me what I want and I'm about to order something that's non-alcoholic. How are they going to view me? Are they going to think I'm cheap yeah. and that I'm not going to tip? And can I stay up here at the bar and hang out like I would if I were drinking, right? It's another it's another layer of stigma. Yeah. We've, we've gone through enough, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, an, it's another layer. And also another sort of side point is that you mentioned that the cost of alcoholic beverages, well, non-alc costs a lot too these days. Um, and that's another story for another time, but wow. Like you wrote the first draft of a book just by not drinking for a month. I'm so impressed. Uh, congratulations. That is insane. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's for something positive for positive people. Um, essentially condensing the podcast itself from 300 whatever episodes at the time of its release down into a book just kind of sharing my experience because people ask me all the time well how did you deal with it what happened to you and I'm like it's not fair for me to ask you to go and listen to the podcast because that story's like sprinkled in there in bits and pieces so instead I'll be able to ask oh did you purchase the book or (laughs) (laughs) something like that so um yeah it's it's nice and I had a lot of um, contributions from some of my board members about different parts of it. Um, and I've, I've had a lot more clarity, of course, but general creativity overall and being able to more clearly see um, further out. Like I, I've always been the kind of person who I look right down, take one step in front of me, but I'm able to see like a few more steps out in front of me. Uh, just from this clarity, I would say. And mm. in addition to that, I don't know how much I do know how much alcohol had to do with this. So I've been uh, very mindful of like my health lately and mm. in attempting to um, I, I have had high blood pressure for like 12 years, probably since I was born, to be completely honest. But uh, I received the warning of, hey, we're going to have to get you on medication for like the last 10 years. And I've just been blowing it off. And I've just not like added salt to my food. But instead of like what I've learned is that it's not just adding salt to your food. It's like the sodium that's in a lot of the foods that I've eaten. And so when I would drink, 
I would lose mm. any and all sense of control. I could eat a whole pizza, 12 yeah. chicken wings, drench it in ranch, and eat mm. toasted ravioli. I would just, I remember, you know, these things. I can eat a lot, but it doesn't mean I have to eat a lot. So I've been able to incorporate some of that presence and mindfulness into my eating habits. And like in that process, uh, while my goal wasn't necessarily to lose weight, it's just been to lower my blood pressure. Uh, I have lost a significant amount of weight and I credit wow. that too to not drinking. Um, you were crushing it. I, yeah, this was what I wanted to talk to you about. Like I wanted to just save it for the podcast and, and get that real response from you. But no, I want to thank you between you um, and there's someone I follow on Instagram in Australia. She recently started posting about her own journey with sobriety and I'm I'm just seeing it a few different places. There's also the sober sexpert, I want to say. Yeah, tell Tawny, yeah, she's that's a good, her name. She's a good friend of mine. She just wrote a book called Dry Humping. Oh, <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, like seeing these influences has really been something that's helped me um, in my personal life. So I wanted to bring you on here and say thank you for that. Oh, and, thank uh, you. Yeah, I appreciate you putting yourself out there. That means so much to me and you caught me on a day where I was kind of just feeling major like the imposter syndrome and just kind of general being down about a lot so that means a lot to me um don't take away all of your credit though like you did the work and and um I can't believe you've written the first draft of a book I'm just like wow that inspires me because you you know I I, I don't know if anyone out there listening is 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 even familiar with me and, and if not that's totally cool so it gives you an intro to who I am but I've been alcohol free sober booze free um for 16 years and so that's the better part of my adult life um I, I got sober when I was 24 and um and so I've I've spent most of my 20s all of my 30s and now into my first year of my 40s um without without drinking alcohol and and so you know maybe in the beginning I had some like spurts of clarity where I was like wow it's nice to not have a hangover I still love not having hangovers by the way it's one of the best perks of uh not drinking alcohol to this day it's still one of my favorite things but um now I'm just you know living life so I've got to I've got to find that discipline again to start writing you know the first draft of my book thank you Courtney yeah for sure <laughs> amazing uh, 24 seems like a pretty young age to decide to just stop drinking especially you know most people are starting to make money and being able to go out and socialize with friends going to the bars clubs etc what made you decide to give up drinking at age 24 Whew. well it wasn't one of these like i'm sober curious i want to be mindful with my consumption you know there there wasn't any kind of language then about sober curiosity and about um, trying out a month without drinking like a dry January or a sober October or dry July. It was, you're either an alcoholic or you're normal. And that, that was the language that I was coming into. That was the discourse. And that was the stigma against people who didn't drink alcohol. Um, I didn't have a, a sort of a, a choice in the way like, Oh, well, I guess I'm going to quit drinking. I w was, well, I put myself frankly in a lot of really, um, uh, dangerous situations and had a lot of negative consequences. I only drank for six years, um, starting from age 18 until 24. And um, there's a saying that, that a lot of people who, who sort of 
have this history with with um, drinking um, alcohol and substance use disorder, they say, you know, first it was fun, then it was fun with problems, and then it was just problems. And so that was my trajectory in the course of six years. By the end, by the last year and a half, I was hospitalized for alcohol poisoning twice. And, um, and, and then on top of countless uh, negative sexual situations, dangerous, um, you know, just putting myself in vehicles with people who were drinking, um, so many things that I vaguely remember. And then, of course, there's a lot of stuff that I don't remember. Um, and, and so after my second hospitalization for alcohol poisoning, I really felt scared. Something was different. Like I said, I'd been, I'd been, you know, rushed in, in an ambulance to the ER once before for alcohol and it scared me, but something inside internally, it just hadn't clicked yet. And so I, you know, I kept drinking after that, not the day after, maybe not even the month after, but you. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have any tools in my tool belt. And I was too young. I was 22 at that time. So the second time, like I said, something internally clicked. Um, I don't know what it was. I didn't think in terms of forever because that sounded way too scary. And all I, all I knew was that I needed professional help. Um, and, and I didn't know what that was going to look like or what my life would, would end up looking like. But I know that once I started this outpatient um, intensive outpatient program. I just really liked not having hangovers. And that was, that was the biggest thing that just kept me going. Um, and of course, over time, my relationships with family and friends and some friends I had to cut out cause they were toxic, but maybe they would think of me as toxic, you know, it, it, you know, if the shoe fits, it, it depends. Um, but all, all throughout, um, you know, I just, again, I never thought in terms of forever. I just knew that I, I was starting to feel better. Um, and again, there weren't any non-alcoholic options back then other than soda um, or milk. <laughs> so I was like, this isn't, I'm like, I'm not in an episode of the Brady Bunch. Like I want something else. But, you know, in the first year I wasn't looking for, for non-alcoholic options. I just needed to stay sober. For me, that was what it was. I, and, and as I got more comfortable um, not drinking, I was navigating being a, a mid 20 something without alcohol in sort of the quote unquote prime of my young adult life. Um, I mean, it was prime yuppie territory going out to happy hour, going to weddings, being in weddings, like all of the things. And, you know, I just, I felt so excluded because I wasn't the one drinking alcohol. So um, it was more of a thing that I needed to do to save my life, frankly, to, to get sober. Um, and now it's turned into like my life. Of course, um, you know, there's a reason I'm on this podcast. So who's gonna, who's gonna address the elephant in the room, right? Well, before we transition to that, uh, something that came to mind as you talked about, you know, being hospitalized twice for alcohol poisoning. I remember the last time I prayed, I was about 20, between 24 and 25 years old and I, I said God listen if you got a lesson to show me I need you to just don't take off a limb don't put me in a car accident just like show me I'm doing the right thing and I'll just keep doing that don't like mm. blow my life up with a terrible thing happening to teach me a lesson like I'm I'm good at learning lessons by positive reinforcement right and so my question for you is, uh, how can someone kind of see 
the signs before it hits to or it starts to get to a point where they put themselves in dangerous situations or before they end up hospitalized for alcohol poisoning where they may think that uh they may want to assess their relationship to alcohol yeah well i would first of all it is it is purely individual to every single person and drinking two glasses of wine and feeling a little headachey and dizzy might be someone's like this is my sign that I can't feel like this anymore. And for someone else, it might take them a hospitalization to realize that they can't keep putting themselves and others in danger. So it's everyone has a personal sort of like um, set point or a point of, of no return. And I would, I would certainly hope that people don't reach the point where they are getting hospitalized for alcohol poisoning. You know, I didn't get my stomach pumped, but I was, heavily monitored throughout the night for, for both of my, you know, stays in, in ERs. And, you know, it's, it's difficult because like when you're in it, you're not thinking rationally. Like when you're, when you're intoxicated from alcohol, it's, we know that it's, it's called intoxicated for a reason. It's a toxin, it's a poison. Um, and, and when it's in your system, it affects so many different things, not just physiologically, but neurologically, emotionally, all of the, all of the things. And so your brain is just not thinking rationally and it can be very difficult to access any kind of, um, any kind of, um, not will, but just like, um, self-control, self-control, impulse control, like stopping yourself before it gets worse. So, you know, and I'll, and I'm telling you, like, I'm, I thought of myself as quite responsible beforehand and, and still do, but I would, I would always impose limits on myself. Tonight is a two drink night for me. I'm going to space it out with water. Um, and I, and I did, and then something would change and I would drink another drink or drink. There were, or there were plenty of nights where I had a quote unquote normal night where I ended up back home. You know, I, there there wasn't Uber back then, but I would either like Metro home, take a cab home, whatever the case may be, get home safely, be in bed, nothing nothing went wrong. But just as many nights, something would go wrong, and um, and of course then there were those handful uh, of nights that were really traumatic. Um, so it's really difficult to say like how can how can you stop yourself from getting to that point? Um, I think now there are so many more beverage options that provide social um, social elixirs and, and social gelling, um, whether they're functional beverages, whether they're, um, you know, light cannabis beverages, if people want sort of um, some sort of different mood or mood enhancing, you know, I'm, I'm not here to judge what, what someone does, but it's, it's ultimately going to still be healthier than, than drinking alcohol. But there are other options that they can have so that they don't feel like they have to have alcohol to get to a different place. Um, but it's really hard once you're already, once you already have alcohol in your system to make those self controlling decisions. Um, so I would just encourage people to, um, to be sober curious, to be more mindful of their consumption. There are so many great books and podcasts out there. Um, one of the like sort of Bibles of sober curiosity is called sober curious. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to be any more obvious than that. And it's, um, it's a really great book on just getting curious about your consumption, treating it like a scientific experiment, trying one month, um, of not drinking alcohol a lot more difficult if it's like a food issue someone has you know you can't stop eating um Ooh. but you can't stop drinking 
Uh-huh. You can stop drinking. It's hard. It's not easy. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. If that's something that's part of your, like, life, um, it's going to be difficult. But, like, it's so worth it. It's just so worth it. And even if you even if you drink less, like, um, there are a lot of people who can moderate or can just drink less alcohol. And that is ultimately, that's that's harm reduction. So it's, it's much better than getting drunk if you're drinking, like, a glass of or two of wine or a few beers, you know, spread out throughout the night, um, as opposed to like a six pack of beer or a whole bottle of wine. Like again, reduction is key. So it doesn't have to be a total, um, you know, a total like, um, abstinence, but yeah, I would just, I would just, you know, invite people, um, rather than caution people, invite people to be a little more curious about what they put in their systems. As you were talking a story came to mind and I had a little bit of an aha moment because um, personal story time. Yay. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I was, I remember I met someone and we had sex while we were both drinking and mm-hmm. then we had sex when neither of us were drinking. Mm-hmm. So we met for the first time we connected, things were going well. We negotiated things. I disclosed, um, I have herpes. She doesn't first night time whatever we want to call it that we hooked up phenomenal memorable mind-blowing couldn't wait to do it again a little bit of time passed thought I'd never see her again and she uh, reached out and was going to be in the same place as me for another event that I was uh, taking part of and we met up this time and at this time I wasn't drinking and I let her know I was like hey you know I'm playing with this not drinking thing and she was like oh okay well um I've been wondering about that myself, so I want to drink. So, cool. We get together, and we're not drinking, and I, in hindsight now, I recognize that she seemed to have needed that alcohol to perform in the way that she was performing, and for me, it felt as if... um, I recognized that like I was just more present and in tune with what was happening around me not drinking so I was able to pick up on things that may have been present before that weren't now like Mm -hmm. I now from you know having this conversation with you wonder if the second time it was like more of her thinking in her head because I pointed this out to her I was like hey it seems like you're making an attempt to end these sex sessions a lot faster and I didn't register that until after we had like a check-in after we had parted ways for the weekend and she started crying like when I pointed that out to her I was like it seemed like that's what was happening and I know we had a lot of conversations about like her past trauma so I kind of knew what not to do what to do mm-hmm. and so in communicating with her uh, afterwards, she just was like bawling. She was like, I just, I don't, no one's ever noticed or asked. And she just felt like so seen from that experience. And, you know, mm-hmm. here I am kind of like feeling a little bit bad because, I mean, not because I made her cry, but because it's like, I wish that I would have had words and language to mention that in the moment. But it was just like yeah. an avoidance of presence for her with alcohol because for her using alcohol 
meant that she was able to be more present and avoid whatever the real presence would bring up for her. And this time that wasn't the case. But the thought that I had was maybe she actually wasn't okay with me having herpes because she didn't have herpes. And that's why it was like sped up and she didn't want to like hurt my feelings. This is just a thought, not to say that this is the thought. Yeah, because this well, is it's an, it's an interesting thought. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not her, but I don't right. think that was probably it was just probably the fact that as a woman who's had sex and with and without alcohol, um, Without alcohol, all of the emotions are much more front of mind, and it. I have felt emotionally raw after intercourse before in different you know different points in my life. So it's just possible that something about the conversation sparked that in her, or or who knows? I don't. I mean, did she? You said that you had a conversation with her to begin with, and she she heard you and registered. I hope. Who knows? Um, but I mean. I don't know if 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 she was aware of the fact that you had HSV the second time. Yeah, yeah, we we talked about all of that. Then, yeah, right. But I'm just like, then why would she rush through it if she? I mean, just if, if it bothered her, like, don't do it in the first place. Like, I don't. So I don't think that's that's what was going on. There's probably something else there. But it's so interesting how when you take away the alcohol, a lot of I mean, it, it's usually alcohol is is, is it's a symptom it's not it's not what's really going on it can mask things it can help um it's it's a coping tool it's a negative coping strategy but it's a coping strategy to feel to quote unquote feel more confident feel more comfortable feel more at ease um in the in the moment so to speak but it ultimately and usually ends up in um, worse anxiety the next day um and and you know i used to I used to drink because I, for, for a variety of reasons, but only until I got sober did I realize that I was self-medicating over a lot of undiagnosed mental health stuff. Um, I have OCD. It's very debilitating, actually. Um, the fact that I'm able to maintain um, different contracts and work and be, you know, a figure in my industry um, while still battling a lot of, like, mental demons and not drinking is a, is a huge feat for me, but it's, it's something that, um, you know, drinking alcohol just made it kind of, it muted it a little bit. It just made it fuzzier. It it wasn't as sharp in my head. Um, I have, you know, a history with panic disorder, um, generalized anxiety. Um, and, and of course a lot of trauma, big T and little T. Um, one of my big T's is obviously what landed me on this podcast. Um, and it's not necessary. It's not the diagnosis per se, but it certainly is the diagnosis at the same time. Um, it was a result of date rape and it was the first, um, it was the night I lost my virginity. So it was the trifecta losing my virginity via date rape and getting herpes, um, as you know, right away. And so for my whole adult sex life, I have had to navigate having HSV two. Um, I have not had a breakout since my initial diagnosis, maybe once a few years into it. Um, but that's, what is time? Let's see. Uh, that's 18 years. Um, I was 22 when I lost my virginity, which is old for some people, but, um, I was 22. It was the night before college graduation. And it was with a boy that I had a huge crush on all my whole four years. And, um, I went into the situation very consensually. Um, and then 
the way it happened was not consensual and it was not with protection. And that's not something that I consented to. I, I was in health class. I remember all of the stories and I was like, you are not coming near me without a condom. Like, let's go have some late night food. And, um, anyway, suffice it to say is that before I knew it, um, I mean, how graphic, like how graphic can I get or how should I, you know, I'll, what... I'll put it in the show notes, like okay. heads okay. up. Okay. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to. As comfortable as you are sharing, because I, I want this to just be you sharing yeah. your experience. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I, I went in very consensually. I wanted to have sex with him. I had a huge crush on him. Um, I, you know, it wasn't ever love. It wasn't love, but it was like, I had a very, I held a torch for this guy and, um, and I wanted to have sex with him and I wanted to lose my virginity to him. I thought anyway, um, trouble with the condom and, um, I was like, well, why don't we, why don't we go? Cause I didn't know how to put one on. I mean, we glossed over that in health class. Like I'd never seen one in real life, really. I mean, it's just like, um, and so we, we went to like this late night, late night food place and came back and, you know, watched TV and had our food. And then like, I kind of fell asleep. I, we were sober by the way. Okay. We were not drink, we were not drinking alcohol. So I was sober. I was still in my drinking days, but I was I was not drinking that night because I wanted to be present for this. And then I'll, the next thing I knew, he was inside me without a condom, and um, I didn't really realize. And you, I knew who... you cut out a little bit earlier. You said you fell asleep. I was kind of like food coma e on the bed, like awake but not totally awake, sort of in that like liminal state where you're kind of falling asleep, but. Um, I was, I was not passed out. Um, I was kind of sleepy and we were not drinking alcohol and, um, you know, the next thing I know he's inside of me, uh, without a condom. And I was really kind of paralyzed because I didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm having sex, right? Like, I think I'm having sex, but then I was like, but this is not the way that I wanted it to be. But like, what am I supposed to say? What can I say? Like, should I you know, get him to get off of me. Like, is he wearing, I don't, I was, there were so many things that were going through my head at the same time. And, um, you know, like <clears throat> I do realize that there are some people that just don't know that they have HSV because so many people just like, you know, I think COVID taught us a lot of things about being asymptomatic, right? You can be asymptomatic, but still carry and pass it along. And, um, I mean, I thought we had a safe sex discussion, but like I had never had a partner, so I knew that I was coming to the table with a clean slate. Um, but we didn't really talk about a lot of those things. We were still kids, like we were we were kids. And the thing that I'm even more sort of like embarrassed or ashamed about is that I went back the next night and willingly engaged in um, unprotected sex because I thought that that was the only way that he was going to have sex with me. And, um, and so a week, a week later, I started getting like the worst pain in my life, um, in my genitals and, um, I didn't know what to do. I was with my parents. I didn't know how to drive, so I couldn't drive myself anywhere because we were, my, my dad's a retired U.S. diplomat. So we were overseas. I was working at the embassy as my, as my, um, part-time job as my summer internship. And so I just, I had to tell my mom, I was like, I think I either have a yeast infection or an STD and I need, you know, I need your help. Like I need to go to the, to, to the health unit at the embassy. And that's when they told me, I mean, they didn't, 
they did not really have a good bedside manner there. They weren't like, you know, oh, gosh, we're so sorry about this. Like, they were just like, you're not going to be able to have a child if you have an outbreak. Like, you're going to, you know, all of these just, it was just traumatizing. And, of course, then I had to get, like, HIV tests and chlamydia tests and gonorrhea. And I was not prepared for and pregnancy tests, like, all of the things. I was, again, I was a, I was a child. 22 feels so old when you're 22, but you're a baby at 22. And um, it was just a lot to have to digest. Um, and all of it was because something was done in a way that I didn't, I didn't agree to. I didn't sign off on that. Um, and it left me with having to navigate my whole life with with needing to disclose to people because I was never going to willingly put someone in the same position that I was put in. Um, and I've gotten rejected so many times over the years because there's, as you are well aware, Courtney, there's a humongous stigma still around herpes. And people are like, oh, I don't want to get the herp. And like, I mean, when I hear stuff like that, it just, it just digs right into me. It hurts. It just because um, people just don't have the education. They're starting to get more with resources that are out there like yours. But um, there's just there's just so much of it that that um, perpetuates because there's this there's this asymptomatic um, shedding for a lot of people and they don't realize that they have it. And I did, by the way, confront this guy um, on, on a phone call shortly after I got diagnosed and I said, you gave me herpes. Like, how could you do that? I didn't have the right language to really address him either. And he was like, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like a lot of denial there, but he probably didn't know that he had it either. Um, of course, over time, I've just had to forgive him because that lets me off the hook. I was living with a lot of resentment and it was just hurting me. Um, but it's it has been difficult over the years to find partners who um, either have had their own experience with it, have had partners with it, or are just like well-read and understand. By the way, like having herpes and in the age of COVID, that's a whole other thing. That was not fun to navigate because you're you're um, you know, you're, you're dealing with two different things that can be spread. Um, but we all know that herpes isn't deadly. It's not, you know, it's, it's not, and it's manageable. And I've had, I've been taking medication for years and years and years, but gosh, it was a doozy the way that it happened. So, um, you know, sometimes things are really ironic. I had never had sex before. And then all of a sudden I had herpes. <laughs> Thank you for going there and sharing that story with me are you okay need a breath or break or anything yeah well i just i took a i just took a breath um i knew we were gonna go to some places i'm i'm an i'm divorced from enough from the situation um i thought you was about to say divorce from him i was about to ask you where like how that relationship i I mean like (laughs) i mean that i've i've had i've had a lot of time and therapy and um you know, I'm, I've worked through a lot of that and, um, but gosh, I still had a lot of, uh, um, self-flagellation and, and, um, you know, only, only recently, you know, in the past few years, um, when, when I think I, I found you and, um, and I found a couple of other blogs out there that were really doing some powerful things around talking about herpes is that, is when I put 
my diagnosis on my on my dating site and I'm not on a dating site anymore I've been I've been seeing someone for for a year now and um it's just a really wonderful relationship um but yeah I mean I was just like I'm tired of of getting rejected and and you know even even though I'd had practice with disclosure you know in the, in the early days I would have a lot of emotions around disclosure like unload some of my trauma trauma dumping to people and um over time and as I as I did age like I got more comfortable with just sharing the facts like hey I have a skin disorder and you know or whatever you want to however I ended up saying it but um you know I was just like I was tired of having that conversation and instead I just wanted to put it on my on my dating profile and then we could have conversations around that but at least the you know at least the cat was out of the bag that way um but man I mean I'm not gonna lie like it's been it's been one of the most like difficult things to navigate through um and then having herpes and being a sober person throughout my the better part of my adult life it was just a, it was a lot to 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 wade through and so anyone who's going through either of those things, like, you know, gets a, gets a vote from me. But if you have both, it's very difficult. And I mean, I'm, a, I'm here as a resource, trust me, but it's, it's hard. It's really hard. I'm not going to take that away from anyone. It's very difficult, but there is, there is like, there is definitely hope. Oftentimes when people receive a herpes diagnosis, they have experience to draw from from that life beforehand and they can say oh my god my sex life is now over because before I had herpes this is what my sex life looked like you didn't have that so can you talk me through what some of your thoughts were when you got your diagnosis aside from being told you can't have kids if you have an outbreak yeah I mean well gosh it's it's hard to go back 18 years but um I just thought like I was, I mean, I just felt like I was never going to have sex again. Um, and the way that you had sex though, had sex ever become enjoyable for you up to that point? Well, I'd never had sex before. No, no. I mean like, so the first time you had sex, you were assault, you were raped. Right. And then you said, uh, you went back and over the next week you got a diagnosis. So did sex ever become something meaningful to you at all like you said that you wanted to have sex you wanted to have a sexual experience with this person and then you went forward to have sex afterwards Mm -hmm. what was it to you did it ever become the kind of sex you wanted to have no no because I mean it was just like it was two nights like um okay it was just twice I thought it was over the week like okay all right no no it was just it was two nights but even over the week like uh, like I I don't think I would have, I mean, it's not like years had passed or months had passed where, um, it definitely did not. I always thought I was going to lose my virginity to someone that I cared about, like every girl in every movie. Right. Um, I just thought it was going to be a little more special, but I thought at the same time that this was going to be a special experience because I've, I had known him for four years, um, whether or not we were even good friends, like, I don't know, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a stranger. So I had a lot of, um, my own reservations about calling it date rape for years because I was like, well, I knew him. Um, well, probably just calling it rape. I was like, I, that, no, I, I knew this person and it wasn't a violent situation at all. But over, over time as I, and as I've, you know, become more educated about, um, consent and about the language around all of this, I realized 
it was not consensual the way that it happened. Um, I didn't get a say in, in how it happened. And, you know, even if he wouldn't have, even if he wouldn't have known that he was a carrier, I would have, you know, and I would have liked the option of knowing that, Hey, at least like use protection with me. Um, so, so it took a long time for sex to become meaningful in any way. And also, I mean, navigating all of that at the same time as navigating sort of coming to terms with being bisexual my whole life. Plot um, twist. <laughs> I feel like that just came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I mean, um, I, <laughs> plot twist. Yeah, I mean, I was, I, was, I was dealing with a lot of internalized biphobia, um, internalized, like, I wouldn't say self-hatred, but certainly self- um, Maybe like apathy, like self apathy no, or not, self. I, just, I don't know, but like the, the having this mental health stuff, having the 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 drinking stuff, and then getting sober, dealing with having herpes, and then dealing with like you know these feelings that I had An had. Identity that crisis. Yeah, God, my whole like twenties had been essentially a big fat identity crisis because I just didn't. I wasn't comfortable sharing that I was bi. I didn't do a lot of experimenting, so I figured it probably didn't. I mean, like, you know, I've learned a lot, ironically or not ironically, from the sober sex expert, um, from Tawny. Um, you know, she's she's in what's considered, I guess, like a heteronormative relationship, but she talks a lot about, you know, that doesn't take away the fact that she's bisexual, and that gave me a lot of courage to to share out loud with me. Like, I've been. I've been in only like, you know, quote unquote, heteronormative relationships, but I've always been bisexual and I've had a few experiments over the years and, you know, I haven't done a whole lot, but it doesn't take away my sexuality, but I was dealing with all of that at the same time and it was a lot. And so therapy works. It's amazing. I love therapy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there was just a lot that I was dealing with lot that I was going through a lot that I was dealing with and um and we all know that life just like recovery just like anything I mean it's not linear there are a lot of ups and downs and um you know my my recovery is is not about drinking anymore it hasn't been for a long time it's about my mental health it's about the journey that I'm on with my with my mental health disorders and um yeah. Okay. Vulnerability hangover. This whole podcast is a vulnerability hangover. <laughs> I know. I, I a lot of people go here with me, and then I don't hear from him ever again. So I, I hope that we can <laughs> at least still follow each other on social media. <laughs> um, I yeah. have. There's two questions that are lingering right now for me. One of which sure. is, uh, typically people's first sexual experience kind of shapes their like turn on. So sometimes like our traumas can become linked to our turn ons in a way. Yeah. You're shaking your head, yeah. Is yeah. is that something true for you? Even something that uh your sexual your first sexual experience happened in your twenties, do you find that there are any components of that that still play a role in your sexual arousal now? Yes. Um, but it wasn't so much about like um, it's not like I'm looking for uh, um, power plays or you know being being um, I'm still kind of working my way around language around like sex positive language so it's not about like you know rape fantasies or or power moves or BDSM or because 
it was not like that. Um, it was, again, not consensual, but it wasn't like that. I think how it's sort of affected me up until, you know, today is that this, this kid was a redhead. And I've still had kind of, I just, I love gingers. As a result, I don't know, like, it's just what it is. I know you're hiding right now. I'm sorry, but it's just like that. I mean, I'm trying to keep my laughing off the mic. No, it's fine. Please laugh because um, that's, that's kind of how it, how it sort of played a role for me. Um, that I was just constantly drawn to redheaded guys and gals, but mostly redheaded guys. Um, and yeah, it's a direct result of, you know, me having a huge crush on this guy who ended up like not knowing it honestly, but like effectively quote unquote rooting my life. But as I, as I've, as I've realized that that's it's like, yeah, I'd love for there to be a cure. I know you would too, probably maybe. Um, but at this point it's just like, it's, it's a dormant thing inside of me and the medication that I take is more for someone else's protection rather than my own because I don't get outbreaks. Um, and if I didn't know that I had it, it wouldn't affect my life in the least. So it only came up or only comes up when I have to have disclosure conversations, which have always been like the biggest, biggest source of anxiety for me. Like it just, you know, up until my, my current relationship, I, the last guy that I dated, God, I was like very drawn to him and I disclosed to him when I wasn't, you know, like I, I didn't, there were no waterworks. It was just like a very factual conversation. And it was around the time I think that I went to your, um, your support session that had some like, you know, ways to disclose in sort of a sex positive way. I think that was the conversation. It was like disclosure, sex positive disclosure. And, um, he seemed to take the, he seemed to take it really well. Um, but just a few days later, he was like, I can't do this. I can't, you know, I, I can't put myself in a situation with someone who has, you know, an STD. And meanwhile, he'd t- been telling me all these things about how he's so progressive and how he's so like, you know, he's been with so many different types of people and had a very like, you know, wild sexual appetite or a very varied, you know, I don't know what, but, um, but to be, to be rejected over that, it's like literally one of the most common things ever, but it really affected me because again, I was like, uh, I put, I don't know about you, Courtney, but I, every time I had to put myself out there, it's just emotionally draining, emotionally exhausting to have to do this disclosure conversation. Um, when for some people it's not, it's not a big deal. Um, I had gotten really, really good at starting to like, just take out any of the emotional junk around it. Um, but I was still getting rejected and that's what, that's what led me to just, you know, put the, put the herpes on my, on my hinge profile. I got a lot fewer matches, but I, it was on my terms and I felt much more empowered about it. Um, I didn't meet my, my current partner through hinge. Um, but I felt so empowered by, by putting it forward saying like, this is, this is me. Um, I am, you know, I'm medicated. I am, um, well-read, educated. I can help you. You can do your own research, but this is, this is the deal. And you know, if you still want to talk here, you know, hit me up or whatever. Yeah. I don't know what it was. And I had it, you know, even I had it like in the pinned, um, in my pinned, um, posts on Instagram for a long, long time, because I wanted people to know that it's okay. Like it's totally okay. And it's, it needs to be more normalized. Um, but 
I'll, I'll be honest, like it's been one of the, the most challenging things to have to navigate in my adult life, um, more so than sobriety, like actually by a lot. Okay. Uh, the second question that I have for you was, you mentioned alcohol sort of being like a coping thing for all of these other things that you had going on that were undiagnosed. My curiosity is what's replaced alcohol, if anything. So like if alcohol was your crutch for avoiding dealing with said OCD and uh, whatever else. All, like where, all my other stuff. All yeah, my other stuff. <laughs> where are you able to put that? I, I don't want to call it addiction, but there's like an energy of compulsion that I think we tend to invest a lot of ourselves into alcohol can be one but when you remove alcohol what's there next is there sex is it sex that's there is it vaping that's there is Mm -hmm. it uh reading is it obsessively cooking going to the gym right so that's my question if that's clear enough for you yeah it's totally clear and by the way if 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 that's not enough like add actually having obsessive compulsive disorder to that mix because it's 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 a lot of fun when you do that <laughs> um so it's it's not so cut and dry for me um i didn't have another you know addiction that i replaced it with i do have definitely an addictive personality um but in hindsight i can see that and it's and i'm still in a lot of trouble as a result um i am not responsible with money or was not responsible with money so it's not that i had a shopping addiction it's not that i um had a spending problem a gambling problem but i never really knew how to manage my money and and so that was going on when i was drinking and when i got sober and continuing into my 20s and to my 30s and now here we are i'm in a lot of debt i'm in a lot of debt and i don't have any savings really to my name and it's all stuff that i've had to just like you know work my way through and um you know some of it i i feel like was a direct result of like after i after i quit drinking i didn't address my money issues you know so it's not like i was i was replacing any kind of addictive behavior or compulsions but i was not addressing all of the underlying things that were going on um and you know seeing a therapist seeing a psychiatrist dealing with my drinking stuff and with my mental health was was one thing but i left this other thing completely unchecked and um and you know i've just racked up a lot of credit card debt and consumer debt and all sorts of things over the years and um it was a little more like insidious and and slow as opposed to like you know going out and blowing thousands of dollars which i didn't have in the first place so yes and no um not any sort of immediate thing like I, I don't smoke I'm really grateful that I don't because I know that's even more um addictive and harder to quit but I don't smoke um I don't I don't do any other drugs other than caffeine um and I keep it to like two cups a day and uh but yeah I mean I, I had I had and still have some money issues that have continued to haunt me because I didn't look at everything um and get help for everything when I probably should have Do you find that in dating that these other things have an influence on our disclosures? When we look at disclosure, right? We think about herpes disclosure, but I think finances and things like that might even play more of a role 
with someone that you're wanting to get into a relationship with and a lot of times people don't even make it that far into the conversation but that's like something that should come up a lot sooner because that could be a deal breaker for someone you know if you're someone who is equally irresponsible with money you know that ain't gonna work out or if you're with someone who is very good with money being able to come in and say all right well you know here's how i do things like if we get together like we'll have a budget i'm gonna help you get on track those kinds of conversations are those difficult for you to have or do you have them at all not anymore because i'm i've been in um a committed relationship for a year um but one of the things that I liked about OkCupid okay uh, before it got just crazy is is all of the questions that it had. You know, like is dating someone who's in debt a deal breaker? Is dating someone who's messy a deal breaker or overly clean? Because I'm messy, not dirty, not in that way anyway, um, <laughs> and not in any way. But like you know, um, but poor joke aside, like I you know, I chuckled. Someone being super super. Um, uptight about being like so clean that you can't put anything you know astray that would be a deal breaker for me more than dating someone who's messy so it's like but a lot of those conversations like you know are you significantly in debt could you date someone who was in debt if there were reasons behind it you know it's different than it's different than just being completely irresponsible with money like so yeah those conversations should should be out there more so than they are and um frankly like finances are probably heavier in my in my mind than than a herpes diagnosis I mean that's a really easy thing to work through if you're careful and you're educated about it um yeah I had my I mean I didn't get to the finance discussion with a lot of the people that I dated because like it was never really a factor like it wasn't like let's combine our finances let's talk about like you know getting serious but um you know now it's now it's something that we're talking about (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's definitely it's definitely come in more recently but um yeah maybe maybe it doesn't have to come up right away in dating I don't know okay well thank you for sharing that with me um I was just curious because it sounded like you had a lot of different things to potentially disclose and being rejected for herpes for many oh, of us Lord. Can be <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a like... lot of things to disclose that's for sure yeah <laughs> so many of us are just like you know, someone rejected us because we have herpes and there's probably so much more to it than that. And I think that what you've shared has just given a little bit of a reality check of other things that there are to add to the list of things to have a discussion about, right? So I don't exclusively have to tell someone, hey, I have herpes, but I also feel a need to share uh, lifestyle stuff. So right now mm-hmm. I'm very focused on my physical health and this influences me not drinking. So that mm-hmm. kind of shuts down a lot of activities for us to connect and get to know each other dating nights. Um, I'm also mindful of how I'm eating. I have to cook a lot of my foods. So going out to eat is something else that's off the table. So really all there is, is like, lifestyle physical activity do you want to do something outdoors do you want to go someplace indoors here are what our options are so a lot of options seem limited based on these things and we talked about having an identity crisis but working through that and being able to open up to people and be vulnerable with them and share hey here's where i'm at here's what's going on with me do you accept this yes or no and to be rejected for, you know, something like a herpes diagnosis, I think 
that is so out of your control that it feels like being able to like being rejected for having financial situation be less than desirable like that would hit a lot harder because that is something that's in control right i i'm just using that as an example just to give people some type of a takeaway uh some perspective to take away um as they go into their day-to-day life as they go into dating and they start thinking Mm -hmm. about or vetting other potential partners you know you might have herpes but what about this other person and their situation Right? They've you got something. They've got, got something to disclose. Everyone has something, and and if I can also just add, like it's it's not about um, uh, levels of. Uh, um, I don't want to use. Uh, I don't want to use the word promiscuous because it's it's not sex positive. But um, it's it's not about um, the amount of sex someone has or doesn't have, um, because like herpes can happen as 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 I know the first the, the very first time you engage in it. So it can happen to anyone anywhere. Um, and, and, and once you get a diagnosis, I mean, what is, what's this? The statistic is still one in four. Yeah. One in four people oh, have it. I don't, I don't look at that. <laughs> yeah, I don't okay. look at stats at because all. I, I think, I think there is, a, I think it is something like that, that it's like one in four people, um, are either, either have it and know about it or are a carrier for it, which is why it gets so widely spread. Um, oh, 87% of people who have herpes don't know that they have it. That's... Okay. So that's a very useful statistic, you mm-hmm. know, and that's why, I mean, I'm sure this guy, like, I'm not getting him off the hook entirely, but just like, I'm sure he didn't know if he, you know, maybe he did. And that would be really horrible of him. But if he, if he didn't know, he didn't know. Now that doesn't take away the fact that he should have used protection. Okay. But, but I'm not blaming him for having something that he didn't know about. Um, I'm blaming him for not, you know, not treating me in a consensual manner. That's a different story. Um, so all I would say to anyone listening who's going through stuff is that, um, you know, a herpes diagnosis isn't, it really is not the end of the world. And it feels like it, it really does, but it is not. And there's so many, um, it's just, it's just been part of my life and it's been, it's been challenging. Like it's, it's actually been really difficult. Um, and probably because I've never had, uh, you know, quote unquote life before herpes in a, in, in sort of a sexual, uh, like I, a fully I would... realized adult. I would think that that makes things easier for you, though, because this is all you've known. So with nothing to compare it to, there's no moments of grief to have to let go of who you used to be and who you thought you would be based on that. You only had this point of reference. Yeah, but there's been a lot of grief Mm. for the life that I didn't get to have. Ah. I didn't get to have a quote unquote normal sex life. I didn't have to make disclosures to, you know, I wouldn't have had to make a disclosure to every single sexual partner. I would have talked about safe sex. And as long as we use a condom, great. Like, let's do whatever. Like, let's have a one night stand. Um, but I didn't, I had so much grief over the life that I didn't get to have. This is what I knew. This is what it is. I'm going to work through it. It sucks, but here it is, you know, facts are in front of me and I can, I can work around them. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of grief for me. It was, it was about what I didn't get to have as opposed to what I did have. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing as much as you have and for clarifying that point for me <laughs> as well. Um, oh, of course. Do you want the opportunity to just shout out Zero Proof Nation? Uh, like, 
how can yeah. people connect with you who do you want to connect with why do you want to connect like um i'll let sure. you do that and then i'll send us out of here okay well thanks courtney um yeah so real quick hi everyone um so zero proof nation is a um <laughs> sorry got, uh, zero proof nation is a global resource hub for all things non-alcoholic uh ranging from booze-free bars to non-alc beverages to bottle shops to industry news um I just launched a global map of alcohol-free only establishments across the world, and there are close to 300 individual places um, that are solely alcohol-free, um, ranging from Poland to Australia to Chile and Mexico to, you know, um, all sorts of places in North America and the UK. Um, and I, once again, care about non-alc so much because of my own story, because of my own sobriety. So I want to connect with, with anyone who's interested in um, learning more about the non-alc world. Um, I'm happy to give you tons of, um, of my own like product recommendations. And, um, you know, more importantly, I'm happy to connect with anyone who, you know, wants to wants to connect with me over my story. And, and if anyone needs any help, I'm not a licensed professional. Um, so I'm not going to give you licensed help, but I can certainly provide um, my perspective of what it's like to to date with herpes for the better part of my adult life um, and to date sober. So I got both of those check, check. <laughs> and I'll have the check now. <laughs> All right. And where can people find you? Well, on the gram, uh, depends on, on what you want, but if you just go to my main page, um, which is at we are sober, um, it has the links to my, to my other, to my other, um, Instagrams. And if you're ever in the DC area, you can, um, you can look up booze free in DC as well, which is, which is a travel guide to the, to the area from a non-alc perspective. And, um, yeah, just find me on the gram. That's where I am. Oh my God, that's a horrible rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, if I can get you to stay on for a little bit after we're, I close out the outro, um, we'll just kind of check in about how the podcast went for you and I can add whatever disclaimers you would like. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast. If you have not already, please go to www.spfpp.org slash survey and take the survey for people who are living with herpes. This information is critical in helping us being able to continue to do what it is that we're doing here at Something Positive, uh, expanding on consistent, accurate resources that people are able to utilize for their discussions around sexual health, as well as being able to inform people who might not have herpes uh, so that they can be a little bit more aware of the reality of it. Um, Monday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific time, Patreon subscribers, which this is why you need to be a Patreon subscriber, have access to the weekly herpes support group. It's a virtual call with Patreon subscribers. If you are interested in being a part of that, visit patreon.com slash SPFPP and you can join for as little as $5 a month. And then uh, the fourth support group every month uh, is going to, or the fourth <laughs> Monday of every month is going to be open to the general public. So uh, if you're on Patreon, you get weekly access. If you are not on Patreon, then you can join the 
group on the fourth Monday of the month, and that will be on the events tab of the Something Positive for Positive People website. So just visit www.spfpp.org and you can go to the events tab and you'll see the link and the time and the date and information for any events that we have going on. And if you go there now, you'll see that we're in the process of creating a virtual conference for Something Positive for Positive People. Uh, that will be May 23rd, 2024. So please mark your calendar so that you can attend. It'll be an all-day virtual conference where we will present the survey data that we have as well as have some speakers there to talk a little bit about stigma, herpes, and get you some resources that you can, uh, that'll be a little bit more dependable uh, than what you might have uh, scoured the internet for. All right. Um, that's it. That's all I got. I look forward to y'all being here for future episodes, and I look forward to hearing from anyone who wants to be a podcast guest, or if you want to make a donation, you can reach out to me directly. Um, Again, this is a nonprofit organization, and um, we run off donations, we run off of grants and funding, ain't no active grants right now, (laughs) so yeah, these donations are really keeping us afloat. Till next time.